stable vices, abnormal horse behaviors, definitely could be one of the most frustrating aspects of care and management of these equids. And as a young enthusiast <laughs> earning my bachelor's degree in pre-veterinary medicine, I was very fortunate to work at the racetrack in Del Mar to get a more close-up and personal view of the just the racing industry, but the top thoroughbred performers. And, and this was a couple decades ago. Little did I know how hard everybody worked uh, to support these animals and support the thoroughbred racing industry. I would go to bed around 8 o'clock at night. My alarm would ring and wake me up around 3.30 in the morning, jump up, get dressed, grab some coffee, get a little bit of breakfast, and thankfully I only lived a, a few minutes from the Del Mar racetrack, park with everybody else, and be at work around 4.15. And I was very fortunate to work for one of the, the top thoroughbred trainers of the day. Very nice, immaculate barn, million-dollar thoroughbreds. And I would go in and look at my list of the day of the horses that I personally hot-walked, helped groom, helped feed, until the veterinarians came. And then being a pre-veterinary student, I was able to shadow them or the farrier or, or things like that. And during that experience, I remember one of the things that stood out to me is seeing these young horses at the front of their stalls and they would just alter their weight on their front feet back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I didn't know that was actually called weaving at the time. I didn't know that was a stereotypic stable vice that horses develop. And I wanted to learn more. You know, why do horses do that? And what causes that behavior? And is there anything we can do to alleviate the stresses that cause that behavior as, as I've progressed in my career? And as I've gone through the years, coming across horse after horse with cribbing, pacing, perimeter walking, all of these stable vices or all of these stereotypic or abnormal behaviors. And I can honestly say over the course of my career, we now know more about the causes and how to alleviate the stresses than we ever have before. Secretariat being led, he is numbering... The horse. And the horse is the best thing in the world, isn't it? So I suppose one's always... I've always loved them, really. Ever since I was a little girl. Everybody's in line, and they're off. The secretary to weigh very well has good position... The love. Oh, I never thought owning a horse could mean so much to me. Secretary not taking the lead. The madness. What kind of a horse is that? Their story. Mustang is more involved in the, in the early development of this breed than I thought they were, but they were. Welcome. 
too mad about horses. Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Mortensen. I'm an equine scientist, researcher, enthusiast, educator. Been doing this for a few decades. And in this Mad About Horses podcast, talking about abnormal horse behaviors. And like I said, it will drive you nuts. It probably is driving some of you nuts that are listening to this. Or when you do run into it, it is frustrating. And estimates as high as 35% of horses or stabled horses will develop some type of stereotypic behavior in their lifetime, one out of three. Now, I'll I'll do some of the statistics later, and that could be as low as 10%. There are different factors into which horses will develop stereotypic behavior. But watching those thoroughbreds, weave in their stalls. And it wasn't all of them. It was just a few of them, or it could have been just one. This was so long ago. But I was like, oh, that doesn't seem normal. But when you go and look at the science, or like I said, I've gone in my careers, there's just certain horses, stabled, pastured, whatever, that will develop these stereotypies. And I just want to say, listening to this, well done you. And if you do have a horse that has bad stereotypic behavior. Don't beat yourself up over it. This is a, you're going to come to find out, this has been going on for thousands of years. It's been really recognized in the last few hundred years as a big problem with horses. And today there's a lot of research ongoing into what causes this. Why do they do it? And it should be a concern to you. Because horses that do develop stereotypic behaviors, it can impact their health. In some instances, it can actually increase their risk of colic. So when we're going to talk about cribbing or wind sucking, it can cause them to burn a lot of energy. So horses that are hard keepers or ones that have difficulty keeping weight on, If they're a pacer, meaning they pace around or they perimeter walk or they weave, that is expending energy and they could drop weight or you may be having trouble keeping weight on. With the weaving, they have abnormal hoof wear, which could lead to lameness with the different strains on their ligaments and tendons. And then obviously with crib biting, that's the next story I really kind of want to tell because I think this was one of the most frustrating ones that I've dealt with with a mare and she would crib despite everything we would try to get her to stop and it's estimated that five to 15 percent of horses will develop cribbing now what is cribbing if you don't know this is a oral stereotypic behavior so this is horses with their mouths will develop some of these abnormal behaviors because that is they don't have hands right it is one of the things they can use to manipulate their environment is their mouth. And so with cribbing, a horse will grip a fixed object, usually like a fence, a wood fence. It's around chest level. It could be an automatic water that's metal. Ouch. Uh, It could be a fence line. It could be the side of their stall. And the horse will grip it with their incisors and then lean back on their hindquarters contract the muscles on their neck and bring their head into like this arch position. So they're arching their neck as they pull back and then they draw in air that produces this 
grunting sound. Now, wind sucking is like cribbing without them gripping something with their teeth. So a cribber, if they have nothing to grab onto with their teeth, they'll de- they could develop wind sucking. So that's why they kind of go hand in hand. Now, what the research has also shown is cribbing causes the horse to release feel-good hormones or endorphins. So they become addicted. It's almost like a drug addiction where the horse does this and it makes them feel good. So they become addicted to it. We had this mare, riding mare, and I worked with her for a couple years. She would crib on anything. And when I looked at her mouth, this is where cribbing becomes a big problem. She had nubs where her front two teeth were, her front incisors. They were literally nubbed down to the gums because she had cribbed for so long that she wore them down and she lost her like two front teeth. They were just little nubs. What that means is she would have difficulty out in pasture selecting forage. She would have a difficult time chomping it off to get enough to chew. So that was a concern. And then she would do it and cause damage to the stalls, damage to equipment. Here's we actually put a cribbing collar. Now, this was a, a quite a while ago, a couple decades ago. And at the end of this podcast, I'll talk about why that's probably not a good idea uh, today in today's world. But a cribbing collar, and if you still use it, it's fine. I'm just going to talk about it later. But a cribbing collar tries to prevent them from doing it or makes it very uncomfortable for them for doing it. But she would crib through the cribbing collar. She was addicted and you couldn't stop her. And so that's where I I share that frustration with you. And that's just cribbing. There is a whole host of stereotypic behaviors, all different, similar causes to an extent, but something that you see in horses all around the world. I will also say right here, we mainly see it in stabled horses, so stabled vices, but pasture horses can develop it. And I'll show you the data here in a minute, what that means. The exciting thing for you and for me, you know, because I'm I'm a big horse nerd, research nerd, there is a lot of good research coming. There's a lot of research being conducted day in, day out, looking at stereotypic behaviors. And I tip my hat to Dr. Cindy McCall. I knew her years ago at Auburn University. She did a lot of research in cribbing. I remember seeing her lab was a massive pasture with a bunch of poles out there with bad cribbing horses. And she was studying the the behavior. How do we alter the behavior? And some of her early work has led to, to wonderful greater work that we're using today. When we look at the definition of a stereotypic behavior or stereotypies. I pulled a paper, Journal of Veterinary Behavior. This was published just a couple years ago by Kirsty Roberts and others out of the United Kingdom. And just to give the definition, and we'll break it down, but to quote them, they stated, quote, stereotypic behaviors are repetitive, invariant, idiosyncratic, and induced by motivational frustrations repeated attempts to cope, or central nervous system dysfunction. Now, that's a lot of scientific mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> and that's what we learn 
in scientific writing, we use some big words and it's not uncommon for me to pull out a dictionary and go, okay, what do you mean? And break that down because in science communication, sometimes as scientists, we don't do the best way of, of communicating to the masses. So what this definition means, stereotypic behaviors are repetitive. That's easy. Okay. So they do it all the time. They repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Invariant. Okay. That's a big word. That means the behavior never changes. It's the same pattern over and over and over and over. Okay. Just think of a a perimeter walking horse, small paddock, circling, 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 circling for hours. Idiosyncratic is an unusual habit or a strange way of behaving. So these aren't normal behaviors. Repetitive behaviors of grazing or foraging, that's normal for a horse. You know, being alert, eh, not super often, but you know, 5% of the day they should be alert. That's normal behavior. Perimeter walking, being on alert all the time, or stall weaving, going back and forth for forever. It, that's that's a that's a strange way of behaving. Okay. Central uh, nervous system dif- dysfunction. That is a veterinary question. That that's a little bit beyond uh, this podcast. This is more about stable management. Things you can do to help alleviate that. But if there is some sort of neurological disorder, it can lead to stereotypies, and that's where you work with your veterinarian because you know they're being treated for some sort of neurological disorder. Now we say these are abnormal. Well, what's normal? And I've got to expand on this a little bit because in previous podcasts, I've talked about what's normal behavior and only you know what's normal for your horse. But that mare, we'll call her Cersei, back in Texas, it was normal for her to crib. That was her behavior. She did it daily. But is that normal? No, that's an abnormal behavior in her normal behavioral repertoire. What I'm trying to get at is know what's normal for horses in general. And then when you see some of these abnormal behaviors, you go, okay, that's not normal for a horse. Now, if your horse suddenly starts to develop a new stereotypic behavior, then you know, okay, okay, something's off. Something's not normal. And as always, my advice to you would be to speak to your veterinarian. If something's off with your horse, if they behave differently, get your vet out to check to see what's going on. That's always a good place to start. You know, but normal for horses, we talked about this in the Day in the Life of the Horse podcast or Signs Your Horses Are Happy podcast. Depending on the studies you look at, if you're observing over the fence in a paddock, horses should be foraging 60 plus percent of the day. Alert behaviors for horses, like I said, is around 5%, 6% of the day. So what does that mean? Out of the 24 hours in a day, horses are alert for a little bit over an hour, hour and a half of day of that behavior spread out, obviously, throughout the day. That means standing ears forward, just monitoring their environment. Now, I've mentioned a couple of the stereotypies, the weaving is part of locomotion, and then the wind sucking or cribbing is oral behaviors. Other types of locomotive behaviors, that pacing in a stall or perimeter walking. So these, again, are abnormal uh, stereotypies. The oral behaviors, the only ones that I haven't mentioned is wood chewing. 
Now that could be nutritional. We'll talk about that. But that is the horse chewing wood. It is natural for them to eat bark in the wild. They do do that. But if they are chewing wood, if they're destroying your barn or their manger or their fence line, that is not okay. That means there's something wrong in their diets and we've got to correct that. Other abnormal behaviors, aggression. Aggression towards you, aggression towards other animals. Horses are not predators. Now, in fight or flight, if a horse is cornered by a predator, oh heck yeah, they will fight. They will be aggressive. They should. Their survival instinct or survival, you know, yeah, they need to survive. So they they will fight. But that is, I've only come across one in my career of a horse. If you walked in the pasture, he would try to attack you. That was not okay. That is not normal behavior. And this was an, a, a terribly abused horse. So a lot of empathy towards him. And he actually went to a rescue slash trainer that would take him in because we couldn't have him around students. But again, that's a learned abnormal behavior for a horse. And they shouldn't want to attack any other animal. Then you see things like head shaking, not the occasional fly or when you tack them up and they shake their head. It's constantly head shaking. It's a repetitive, abnormal behavior. And then there are some more, there's more where like horses will dunk their feet and do some of these crazy, I'm sure some of you have seen it all, been around horses for a long time. You see things and you're like, what? Some of it could not be a concern, but I would say for the vast majority of these abnormal behaviors, they are a concern. They should be looked into and you should find ways to alleviate the cause because Really, it's going to boil down to some sort of stress. We all know for us personally and for our animals, stress is not good. And I've studied stress. I've studied good exercise stress. But again, you can overdo it. It reduces the lifespan of horses, especially that mental stress. It can lead to ulcers and other disorders like colic. Cribbing, we talked about not only damaging the teeth, but again, could lead to colic or you know, not being able to eat enough food and the horse could enter, you know, into to energy off balance and they lose a lot of weight. It's not a good behavior and they'd rather crib than eat. Seen that. So again, talked about the locomotive, you know, tough to keep weight on, they're burning energy, that abnormal wear on the hooves, the stress on the tendons, wood chewing, destructive to your facilities. And then one I didn't mention was self-mutilation. That is one, I thank goodness, touch wood, knock on wood. I have not run into that. Um, that's self-explanatory though, you know, causing wounds. And that's a horse just in mental stress, you know. And some of you may have seen it. You might be doing rescues or you might have seen a horse that came from a really horrible environment and you're trying to help them recover from that. So I know there's a lot of you out there that do that. And my thanks and gratitude goes to you because those horses need to be loved. And they can be brought back and, and lead long and healthy lives. All right. So that's a, that's the broad picture, stereotypic behaviors. There's some of the big ones. Now, going back to where we've been and where we're going, has this been an issue in horses, say, 6,000 years ago? You know, if we think about when horses were first domesticated and we 
stuck them in paddocks, probably even stalls, you know, and looking at the histories. Once we get into written histories, written down 3,000 years ago, roughly forward, so the Greeks and the Romans. But if you do look at the history, yes, this has been an issue since we've started to confine horses and domesticate them. So again, when I say don't beat yourself up, this has been an issue since we've taken these animals and confined them. And so when we say domestic horses, 5 to 15% will end up cribbing, it's something that they, they suspect. Now, we don't have direct, direct evidence, but they suspect there was cribbing horses 5,500, 6,000 years ago when we were domesticating them. They are finding horses with abnormal tooth wear that show horse was cribbing. So it's something that we've been dealing with as humans these thousands of years that we've been side by side these animals. And I'm going to tell you, I can read the frustration in the histories that I found an article or, or, or extracts from a book that was published in 1860 in the United States in Philadelphia. It was written by Robert Jennings. He was a VS, which is a veterinary surgeon. <laughs> this was a fun read. It was just, it was fun because I could read, again, like I said, I, I can sense the frustration. The title of the book is Horses and His Diseases. And this was written 160 years ago. Now to quote the book, just when it opens up the chapter on crib biting, quote, this is a very unpleasant habit and a considerable defect although not so serious as is often represented. The horse lays hold of the manger with his teeth, violently extends his neck, and then, after some convulsion actions of the throat, a slight guttering is heard, accompanied by a sucking or drawing in of air. The effects of crib biting are plainly perceptible. The teeth are injured and worn away, and that, in an old horse, to a very serious degree. End of quote. Then they go on and talk about like, you know, how they, they can't eat, they can't eat their grain. The crib biting horse is notoriously more subject to colic than other horses. So this was written 160 years ago. And they talk about how to treat it. And this thing looks medieval, this cribbing collar. And to quote them again, quote, the only remedy is a muzzle with bars across the bottom sufficiently wide to enable the animal to pick up his corn and to pull his hay, but not to grasp the edge of his manger, unquote. So it's this cribbing collar with bars across their face. And I know we use today grazing muzzles. I did use a cribbing collar. It didn't look like this, but we do do these things for their better health. But I think we need to be a little bit more judicious in when we use these because there are alternatives. In investigating this is we start with the why. Why do these develop? And then we go to, okay, how do we alleviate that? And I think in my career, that's what's most exciting to me is the management. We've changed the way we're managing horses in the 21st century. Okay, so starting with the big question, why? Up to 35% of horses, one out of three roughly, could potentially develop stereotypic behavior. And very good uh, paper, again, out of Journal of Veterinary Behavior, Equine Stereotypic Behaviors, Causation, Occurrence, and Prevention, 
talks about stereotypies by discipline. Dressage and eventing horses are tending to have more stereotypic behaviors reported than, say, those seen in endurance horses. Okay, so different disciplines. And that's some of that is probably because in a dressage barn, you know, the horses are stabled quite a bit because of the training, the intense training they need to do to do that incredible discipline or inventing, you know, throwing them all together, the dressage, show jumping, and the cross-country course. So there is probably a lot of different factors to why it might be higher in some of these horses that are stabled. But it, it does start with the horse being stabled. We know that. That's why they called stabled vices. And I'll share the data on pasture horses here in a second. The first thing with development of any of those stereotypic behaviors is to speak to your veterinarian and have them do a physical health check. You want to make sure there's nothing physically wrong with the horse. It's just a behavioral issue. Once the veterinarian says, oh, they're, they're healthy, they're fine, then you start looking at, okay, what are the causes? And it boils down to mental stress. And then the only physical really stress is nutrition. So if you're not meeting their nutrition needs, they can develop these stereotypic behaviors. But the big one people always point to, and I always thought was, it's the mental stress of being in a box stall and the horse is just bored. Bored out of their mind. They don't have anything to do. So they start chewing wood or they start cribbing or they start weaving. Like I saw at the racetrack, they were kept in box stalls. But does the data support boredom? Because I imagine sitting in a stall, I mean, sitting around, I had to sit the other day, I didn't have my cell phone, because that's what we use to distract ourselves. And I had to wait for my kids to get out of school. And I was sitting in the car for 30 minutes with just the radio on, and I was going nuts. I was bored, because our attention spans are so short these days. I want my phone. I want to read the news. I, I want to do some social media, right? So I can imagine the horse, but it's not boredom. That's the thing. Or the data doesn't support that it's boredom. Now, bear with me. I'll explain this. Boredom is the anthropomorphic. That's the human spin on things. And when you look at the data, and there's a very good chapter on this, and stereotypic behavior in the stabled horse causes effects and prevention without compromising horse welfare. And this was written by Cooper and McGreevy. And you can find a lot of these articles online. If you don't have access to scientific journals, you can go to your public library Sometimes, and, and the, these are fun to read. I don't know if you're, I mean, if you're listening to this, you obviously care a lot. It's just, it's, it, I just get excited when I uh, learn and keep learning about horses and animals and, and their environment and behavior. But in this article, they talk about behavioral frustration, not boredom. Now, they looked at it from two ways. When I talked about the nutrition, Okay, and then I talked about the behavioral frustration and they tie in together. So I want to start with the diet and then we'll tie that into behavior. Horses are natural foragers, right? That's what they want to do. 60% of the day, lots and lots of hay. That's why today versus what I was you know, 20 years ago, 
we feed more hay. We want to keep feeding more hay. And then, then the type and quality of hay, and, and we're going to have a podcast on that here in the future because it's so important. But at the racetrack and in these stabled horses, the performance horses, in days past, even, you know, we're trying to get away from it, but these concentrated feeds, these high energy diets, feeding, just read it in that 1860 book, corn, and I was feeding corn 20 years ago to horses, straight corn. It was something we've fed for a long time. So when you feed them these high energy diets, like at the racetrack, these horses are like my nine-year-old when he's eaten all his candy. For anybody that has children or nephews and nieces and, and you know, grandchildren, or, you know, you were a kid yourself. We all were. My youngest in the morning, he forages while we're still waiting to get up and he finds the cookies somehow. And when I wake up and he's bouncing off the walls and chasing the dogs and waking up the house, I'm like, oh, he found the cookies today. Or, oh, that candy we got and hid, he found it. And I look and there's wrappers everywhere or cookie crumbs everywhere. Now imagine that's the horse because they're young horses, three, four-year-old, two, three, four-year-old, even five, six-year-old horses at the racetrack. These high energy diets and they're stuck in a stall for most of the day. Now in the morning, we'd walk them, we'd hand walk them or they would go out and breeze or train for the races and then they'd get groomed and then they're back in their stalls. And what we were feeding at the time were these highly concentrated diets with some hay. Now that's changed obviously since back then, but that is one thing that diet, that high energy diet where the horse has nowhere to go to expend that energy. So then that leads into what, you know, this behavioral frustration or these abnormal behaviors, these vices, because they're just like, ugh, ugh. They want to get out and run. They, they need to get out and exercise. If I, if I stuck my four-year-old in his room, I can hear him boom, 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 as he runs around because of the sugar, of all the sugar that is in his bloodstream. That is why we push now more turnout time for horses that are stalled. Now, at the racetrack, we didn't have pastures. You couldn't. There was hundreds of horses there. During the racing season, there is nowhere to turn them out. Now, they didn't stay, they would come in, do their races, uh, and then eventually go back to the training farm where they would get turned out. This is when they're at the racetrack or like when you're at a competition with the horse, you don't have that opportunity to turn them out. And sometimes wherever you live in the world, you have a stalled horse and the turnout is very limited. Because today we, we, we're saying it's best to turn out horses overnight or up to 12 hours a day. That's like optimal for, for stable horses, but you can't do it sometimes. My mare Tari, when I was riding her and training her, and I would just go back to her as an example, because it was just one of those situations where I spent so much time with one single horse, the facility that she was stalled at when I was training her to ride and riding her, we didn't have large pastures. So she, her turnout was just for a couple hours. Why I, got out of class in the afternoon, went to the barn. And if we weren't riding that day or training that day, I would turn her out, muck her stalls, get her feed ready, you know, 
pick her feet, make sure she was fine. And then I would stick her back in her stall. And she was in the stall for most of the day and night. But that's typical. That's typical around the world, typical in history. Now we're starting to, to change that. And we'll talk about like stable toys and slow feeders and things like that. Because it all always comes back to welfare. When I talked about the five domains, and that is what's been driving a lot of this. It's changed a lot in how zoos hold their animals now under human care. In my hometown zoo, the San Diego Zoo, those exhibits are way different than they were when I was a kid. Uh, there's more enrichment. That's more natural settings. There's more trees, more places where animals can hide. They're, they're cared for very, very well. And, and the data shows it that animals like at the San Diego Zoo, they live way longer than they would in the wild. Uh, very well cared for. Just like our horses. That's why the things like nutrition, environment, health, behavior, allowing a horse to be a horse, and then that overriding mental state is so important to understand. So definitely, uh, you know, check out the audio podcast, or now you can go to the YouTube channel. You can click follow on Mad Barn. These are coming out as video podcasts too. But then it comes back to, are they bored? And reading this paper from Cooper and McGreevy, I it really opened my eyes because you read the papers from the, the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s. Like I said, we've been studying stereotypies for a long time. The big one is horses are bored. Well, the data that's emerged since then, maybe that's not true. And again, that leads to this behavioral frustration. The reason they draw that conclusion is they noticed during quiet times of the day when you would think a horse would be bored, right? There's nothing going on. There's no external stimulus, nobody walking up and down the aisles. You'd think this is when horses would do stereotypic behavior. You would think this is when they would be kicking and, and chewing and all those things. And it's not. They actually see that, you know, when you just have video cameras and you're away, horses are dozing or they're foraging if, if they have hay. And it's rare to see stereotypic behavior when there are times of high activity at the barn. That's where you start to see stereotypic behavior, where the horses start doing it. So let me ask you, when you walk into your barn, or for those of you that have been to barns, horse barns, during feeding time, what does it sound like? Or the next time you go, just listen for a minute. Listen to your horses. Listen to the activity. There's a lot of vocal communication going on. There's a lot of circling in the stalls. There's this big anticipation of breakfast or dinner if you're feeding twice a day or late lunch. There's a lot of activity. Or you walk into the barn. Tari would always neigh at me or, you know, any of the horses that we were working with, you walk into the facility, they would all start talking, all start moving, even if it wasn't feeding time, because is it turnout time? Is it time for training? Is it time for grooming? Is the farrier here? It's that is when they notice or when you notice, you know, horses are active and that's when horses will start exhibiting these high environmental stimulations. Now, how does this lead to behavioral frustration? Let me try to explain this. 
horses out in, in large pastures, horses out in the wild, again, that natural inclination to forage all day. Then things like alert behavior, always standing on guard. Now, horses in stalls do that, but then they do get desensitized, right? They feel safe. They're comfortable. There are not predators to be worried about. So where they would normally be alert, they don't have that alert behavior. They can't do some of these other natural behaviors that they're naturally inclined to do. Moving, locomotion, and then nibbling grass or feeding. All of the things that they would normally do outside when you stick them in a stall, you're suppressing that so that is where that behavioral frustration comes in, that it's not that they're bored, it's just they can't be a horse when they're confined like that. They can't allegroom or nose-to-nose contact a lot of times. They can't do some of these things. And so that has led to this stress that has led to these stereotypic behaviors that we see. The good news is there are strategies today and there's more coming there is more research looking into this and i'm going to talk about that here in a minute but the final component of this is okay we talked about wood chewing like i said horses in the wild they'll eat wood or even in a pasture some of you probably dealt with this chewing on your trees that is natural for them getting some bark getting some fiber generally it's okay but if it's repetitive right? It's constant wood chewing. That is not okay. Again, first, it's very destructive to your property, fences and things like that, but it can lead to digestive problems. And it's probably because the horse has a need to satisfy their nutrient requirements. There's something missing in their diet or they're not getting fed enough. So they're turning to wood to fill those needs. And again, I'll talk about how to fix that here in a little bit because that should be an easy fix uh, for most any horses. Now, before I talk about pasture horses, the final component of our stalled horses, imagine you're in the barn, feeding time. You got your feed buckets, or you're weighing out your feed like you normally do, like the great horse owners we are, and the horses are anticipating it. And so they're doing these pawing, these weaving, these stereotypic behaviors of what do you do? You go and give them food as a reward. It's to them in their minds. It's like, oh, I got rewarded for this. So a lot of times we're unwittingly reinforcing this behavior in a positive manner. It didn't even dawn on me until you really start reading these studies and how to tackle that. Yeah. That weaving horse was weaving before we fed him. And then we feed him and they're like, oh, good, I got fed. You know, they noticed me in their mind, even though it was going to get fed either way. So we're rewarding them with food. And then that's something you have to think about if you're dealing with a stereotypic horse is, ow, am I actually reinforcing it? And again, don't beat yourself up. This is all a learning experience. To get to the question, do pasture horses develop stereotypies? And yes, they do. They absolutely do. I go back to that study I found a few months ago on the densely housed horses. This is a day in the life of the horse talking about behaviors. And this was the 
the one in North Africa and Tunisia where the horses were kept densely packed, right? Out in paddocks, but really not a lot of room for them to express natural behaviors, get away from people that, you know, other horses they don't like and weren't fed very much. High stress situation. And that was the purpose of the study to show this is not okay. That situation, especially if you have pastures that are densely packed or not appropriate. I mean, we always say rule of thumb, two acres per mature horse for grazing. But again, if I'm living in New Mexico, high desert, there's not a lot of grazing. That could be eight, nine, 10 acres per horse. Uh, in Florida, mid-Florida, say Ocala, great pastures. But you could probably get away most of the year, two acres. During the winter, might have to expand that out to three or four. But not being densely packed, but sometimes we can't. We just put, we have to put them on pastures that we just don't have the room. A survey done of horse owners in Australia, there's over 3,000 horses. The owners reported half of their horses had stereotypic behaviors, which is really high. Again, this is an owner survey, but they reported 26% chewing bark. So again, that could go into feed, you know, what they're feeding over in Australia, not meeting their horse's nutritional needs. The grasses might be deficient in certain nutrients. So chewing bark, 26%. So that's probably, that's pretty high. 18% licking or eating dirt could be nutrition. 7% pawing the ground. So they did observe that uh, in their pasture horses. And I just use that as, yes, the horses on pasture can develop stereotypies. Generally, it's not that behavioral frustration unless they're really densely packed in a pasture. It's You're probably seeing things like that study showed is nutritional-based. Okay, so the bread and butter of the podcast, preventing or fixing or trying to eliminate stereotypic behavior. Again, keep those five domains of animal welfare in your mind as you go through this. Study after study, the biggest thing they talked about is turnout time. That's the biggest one because it's stable vices. It's the stalled horses that we're concerned with that develop these the most. Turnout time, turnout time, turnout time. You want them out there, free choice movement, free choice grazing, predator avoidance, alert behavior. Again, that's the number one key. So do your best where you can. If you only have a paddock, that's fine. Or you can hand walk your horse for an hour, get exercise with them. I mean, do what you can. I mean, my, my heart goes out to a lot of people that can't. Depends on where you live and costs and all of that. But if you can find a facility, and you see this a lot today too with a lot of boarding facilities, they will offer turnout time. We will turn your horse out for you for a fee. You know, definitely look into that. And your horses need it. They really need it. And what that's doing is giving them access to forage if you have it or ad libum hay, meaning there's enough hay in there that they can graze when they want. So that's where round bales come in, the big, big bales of hay that we stick in pastures, or you feed them enough that it takes them a long time. And we're going to talk about slow feeders here in a second. Where I think it's gotten exciting, because I think turnout time has always been like, okay, we know, turn them out, is this idea of enrichment. And just where I live, I now drive around, and not just horses, but we have a lot of dairy cattle. 
and there are scratchers out on posts for the cows. Dairy farmers are finding out, you know, happy cows, they produce more milk and they're doing things like toys or scratchers or some sort of enrichment activity that the animal can do. And we're seeing that with horses now where we're finding different ways of quote unquote enrichment to set that up for the horse. Think about how zoos do it because uh, many of my friends have come from zoos and I, that's where the idea of enrichment for me started. And now I, I see it in horses, uh, elephants, very intelligent animals. Well, what the keepers will do is when the elephants are in the back, they'll go out in the elephant yard and clean and do all the things they do. But then you'll notice if you go to an accredited zoo like San Diego Zoo or Atlanta Zoo or wherever you are in the world, they will put food all around the exhibit. They'll put it in boxes. They'll hang it up high. They'll put it in slow feeding nets. They'll put it uh, under things where the elephant has to go and find the food and it becomes part of like their day. It's mental stimulating them. It's enrichment. We do it. They do it with all sorts of species at the zoo, like all of them. They even do enrichment with their reptiles. Same thing with horses. Okay, those ideas, because of five domains, that's really what's pushed a lot of this, that horses need some sort of enrichment during the day, especially when they're stalled. So one way you can do it. There was a paper, Goodwin and others, foraging enrichment for stabled horses effects on behavior and selection. They were talking about feeding different types of hay. So mixing the hay I got thinking about it like, yeah, if I ate rice all day with nothing on it, it would get boring. But you mix it in with some potatoes, maybe a little curry sauce or something. But that diet variation allows the horse to smell different smells, have different tastes, and that gives them some mental stimulation. And again, those stabled horses. So you can look at if you're feeding, like I was in California, we fed just alfalfa. When I was down in Texas, we just had grass haze. Mix it. I know people do alfalfa grass hay mixes or mix the type of grass haze that you're feeding or different types of forages. The other part of this is, like I said, that zoo example, things like equiball or slow feeders. Because prolonging foraging time, eating time, is proving to be so beneficial in so many ways. So when I'm going to talk about forage here in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about this, trying to extend foraging times, eating times. Because remember, when I was talking about colic, or you know this, horses are meant to have trickles of feed all day. So for their digestive health, you know, small meals all day or prolonging that foraging time. It also helps mental stimulation while they they feed and forage. So there are now in development and there are studies looking at these slow feeders. You can go to madbarn.com. There's a really good, again, learn tab. You can type in slow feeders. A very good article, very easy to read. Slow feeders for horses, benefits and best ways to use. And what the benefits are is not only is it good for digestive health, social interactions of horses, especially out when they're like out on pasture. Uh, you see decreased aggressive behaviors from horses that are foraging more. 
they spend more time eating. So that weight gain, if you need it in a hard keeper, there's so many good benefits to that. And then if you're concerned, if your horse is an easy keeper or is over-conditioned, this is where these slow feeders come in. So th- so you can just feed them more hay and it will take them longer to get through it. But these slow feeders are really where some of the research is coming and showing that. So again, there's a, this article on Mad Barn will show you the ones, but the hay net slow feeder, okay, the horse has to actually pick the hay out. Takes them a lot longer to eat their hay. That's very good for them, mental stimulation. There's hard slow feeders. So they put the hay in big equa ball or big balls where they have to pick it out. It's kind of like a Kong toy with our dogs. You know, we put peanut butter and, and different treats in there and throw it outside and they run around and it's good for them, right? Mental stimulation. We now have round bale slow feeders. So that only helps protect hay wastage but it takes horses a lot longer to get through that. And yeah, there's some caution with it. You know, you want to make sure like the cording on these nets can get in the horse's feet or shoes. The solid ones can damage teeth and things like that. But again, that's where the research is now today, where I have friends around the world studying this, doing the work so we can find the best ways to enrich these horses' lives. One of the other important things to do, again, is dietary. I'm going to tell you something today for free. You can go to madbarn.com, top right. There's a big button. It says Analyze Diet. You can submit your diet all about your horse. One of our nutritionists will get back to you for free, absolutely free. There's no obligation for anything. And tell you if your diet's deficient in any nutrients. Okay. So we don't want things like, like cribbing, things like wood chewing or wood eating. Also like talking about those horses in Australia eating dirt. So you can do that. You can go there. Links are always in the show notes and get a free diet analysis. Uh, No obligation for anything. So I highly suggest you do that. Now, did talk about cribbing collars at the beginning. Really, I'm not passing any judgment here, but we are getting away from things like that. The negative reinforcements, it is a welfare concern. I would just always say work with your veterinarian. If your veterinarian says do it, do it. They have a lot of experience dealing with this. They know in your part of the world what is acceptable, and they may have have seen certain things that obviously I haven't or others. So The final piece of advice is if you're really frustrated and you're really having difficulty, talk to an equine behaviorist. There could be some training, like I said, unwittingly, positively reinforcing some of these behaviors without even thinking about it. I didn't even think about that. I was like, no way. Yes, they're doing the stereotypical behavior and I dump their feed and that's a positive reinforcement. Of course, they're going to do it next time. So, but it's always worthwhile to maybe talk to them and you can maybe alter your management or do some training uh, to to help alleviate these stereotypies. Okay, and then just all, you know, just the other tips. It's like not only just the feeding time, social contact with horses. They're social animals. They need to be around other horses or other animals too. They can be housed with other species. That turnout time for the stabled ones but using these enrichment ideas, 
I'm sure many of you, and, and I'm going to ask on social media, what are some of your enrichment that you do with your horses? I've seen some awesome videos on social media, just like making me laugh, watching horses just go nuts with the balls and things. And I would also say with the diet, like if, if you're feeding too much energy, maybe your horse is getting way too much sugar and starch in their diet or energy and they're hyperactive. That is something you definitely want to look at. So when it comes to this, these abnormal behaviors, the good news again, the research is out there, but you're here, you're listening to your horse and on behalf of them, thank you. Honestly, thank you for listening. Thank you for wanting to learn more and thank you for sharing this information and caring for your animals. Thank you. All right, welcome back. There's oh, there's so much information out there. It, it does get a little overwhelming. Like when I started doing this research, you know, a week and a half ago and I prepped for the podcast, there is so much good data out there and trying to whittle it down to talk about it in a 50-minute podcast uh, was tough. But hopefully, you know, you learned something. And if you definitely want to learn more, like I said, go to madbarn.com. All these articles, very easy to read, but the learn tab, there's one on wind sucking in horses, causes, effects, and how to stop, weaving, wood chewing, stall walking, circling, and, and weaving. And then why is my horse cribbing and how do I stop it? Oh, geez. Yeah, it, it's it's just one of those ones that's very, very tough. But you do have those resources out there. There is a video podcast now out on YouTube. So if you want, can go and just click follow and... You know, maybe if you're at your computer and you want to see my face and, and I'm throwing graphics in there, I'm throwing some of the studies in there uh, just to show you highlight them. And you can always pause the video and look at the study and then see if you can find it to read it on your own if you want. But yeah, YouTube's there. Uh, that's a big push for us now as we expand our Mad Barn Academy. Uh, again, we've got so many great things coming. So many great things in the works. Not just more podcasts, more video podcasts, but courses and more article writing and your one-stop shop for horse information. That is the purpose of all this. And it's all free. Like I said, that diet analysis is free. YouTube's free, all of that. Just give us the clicks, give us the five-star reviews. That is a way to pay us back. And, and it just takes a little bit of your time. But again, check us out social media, TikTok, Instagram, all that fun stuff but thank you for listening like honestly it means so much to me and all the great nice comments oh wow it just it just means the world to me that uh, this information is coming across and you're enjoying it so thank you for listening and stay tuned next week for another great episode